Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So today I am joined by Mark Lutter, who is the executive director for the Center for Innovative Governance Research, which is a think tank based here in Washington, D.C., and they're dedicated to improving governance worldwide. Today we're going to be discussing charter cities and how the charter city model can really help create and drive a new framework for startup ecosystem creation in emerging and frontier markets. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. I would love to start this off with just establishing, you know, what exactly is a charter city and what are the pieces that, that need to be put in place to qualify for a charter city over a special economic zone? Sure. So if we look at the last 70 years or so, the post-war era, some of the most successful cities have had special jurisdictions, including, for example, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Dubai, and Singapore, which is a separate country. And so a charter city is a new city development with a special jurisdiction that allows it to adopt the best practices in commercial law. And over the long run, we believe that governance is very important for economic development. And charter cities are a policy tool that allows for these drastic governance reforms in relatively uninhabited areas where political challenges might have made those reforms difficult or impossible to do on the national level. And a charter city differs from a special economic zone in that a charter city, one, focuses on the city level. Most special economic zones have a relatively small territory. Two, charter cities have diverse sets of businesses there, while many special economic zones focus on single industries, for example, textile manufacturing. And then the third important difference is that charter cities have this deep set of reforms. So many special economic zones focus on a relatively limited set of reforms, for example, tax incentives, or maybe um, having simplified or expedited customs. The framing is, if a country has a set of laws, how can the laws be cut around the edges to improve them? Well, with charter cities, the reforms are much more deep. The framing is, if we are creating a new system in commercial law from scratch, how do we do that to make this one of the best places to do business in the world? And how do we do this in a manner that allows for the city to be as successful as it possibly could be? And so this framing in focusing on a blank slate rather than on these other sets of Reforms that oftentimes special economic zones don't lead to these substantive, long-run, successful economic development. And the goal of the charter city is how can we create this institutional framework that can lead to 50 years of economic development? I see. And so it's basically a way for a government that has this whole decades of dogma and decades of probably misinformed policies to basically hit the reset button, create a bubble, and attract capital. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's that's accurate. It's how, given that oftentimes changing institutions is difficult because of all of these leg- legacy issues that you identified, how can we sort of carve out these spaces that don't have these strong historical legacies that often inhibit entrepreneurship, inhibit foreign investment, inhibit job creation, and create this bubble that can, one, be successful in and of itself, and two, hopefully demonstrate to the rest of the country that these reforms work so that the rest of the country can adopt them and become prosperous. Right. 
And and I would love for you to really dive into the example of Shenzhen as uh, you know a case study of a successful charter city because I think that really over the past we'll say twenty years China's development has I mean been miraculous and really caught the rest of the world off guard. But I guess what did China get right to turn Shenzhen from a a fishing village and now thirty years later one of the、uh, dominant tech ecosystems in the world? Sure. Yeah. So Shenzhen in 1980 was, as you mentioned, a fishing village with a population of about 30,000 people.、Uh, that is when China declared it a special economic zone. One of the interesting historical aspects is that this wasn't so much a top-down decision. Obviously, the Chinese national government did have to declare it as a special economic zone, but there was a lot of push from, including、uh, merchants from Hong Kong, who were interested because Hong Kong labor prices were rising and because Hong Kong is very close to Shenzhen. We're interested in creating factories with、uh, lower labor prices, so there was this bottom-up push. But in 1980, China declared Shenzhen a special economic zone, and while it's called a special economic zone, it was really what might be called a sort of proto-charter city in that it had a lot of reforms that are unique to it and that have not been replicated in other special economic zones. So one was the size. The initial special economic zone in Shenzhen was 320 square kilometers, which is basically the size of a city. So it was large enough to really gain these economies of scale that many, if it's a one square kilometer special economic zone, just don't have the size to be able to do. Two is the other interesting aspect is the depth of reforms. So many special economic zones have relatively weak reforms. Shenzhen had very deep reforms in it. So these reforms included, for example, pioneering having a labor market, pioneering having a market in land. Legalizing foreign direct investment. The first year of its existence, Shenzhen alone attracted over half of all foreign direct investment in all of China, because basically foreign direct investment was banned outside of Shenzhen. And these deep reforms, and the second important aspect is these reforms did not all come at once. There wasn't some master plan where people said, "Here are all the reforms. Here are how they we're going to roll them out." No, they they implemented a set of reforms. In 1980, but over time, further reforms were implemented as they were able to view the success of the initial reforms. This points to another interesting aspect of Shenzhen, in that many special economic zones today, and we've run into this challenge in working with various government officials, in that there is this idea of we need to plan for every single contingency rather than creating this structure which is able to adapt to future contingencies. And so, in thinking that we need to plan for everything. What happens is you necessarily basically shut off these avenues in the future because you 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 basically decide that we need to have sort of complete control and that limits the scope of authority of the governing body and limits their ability to react in the future. And in Shenzhen, they did not really have that, so they were able to adapt to the future as they saw some of these reforms working and implementing further reforms along those lines. And then the other very important aspect、uh, with Shenzhen. Is how its success inspired the rest of China to adopt special economic zones. Some estimates have as much as 90% of the Chinese population living in、um, special economic zones, and so this is important because it demonstrates that there is this cascading effect, where if it is possible to get a single successful charter city, then hopefully the rest of the country, as well as the rest of the surrounding region, will be able to follow. This pattern also has occurred in the Greater Middle East, where Dubai had their、um, international financial center. They launched it in 2004. Since then, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, and now Kazakhstan have launched financial centers that are effectively modeled on Dubai. And so this shows that 
with one successful charter city, it is possible to follow this pattern of seeing more being created uh, as this success becomes salient and, and influential. And so who are the actors that, that need convincing? Like in China, the different actors outside of Shenzhen that saw the success there and wanted to replicate it. I mean, is it just a, a situation of creating the political will to get it done? Or are there other actors that are needed into, into creating the reforms? So there are definitely other actors that are needed. The, the tagline of the Center for Innovative Governance Research is that we are creating the ecosystem for charter cities. And what we view is, one, obviously, there does need to be political will to accomplish this, to pass legislation that creates the legal framework for charter cities. But this is basically only one step in the process. In addition, we like to partner with master planned cities, because if you're building a new city, it helps to have a partner who has experience building new cities. And there are dozens to 200 of these master plan cities being built around the world, depending on how you want to count. Um, a master plan city, you can think of it in a way as basically a giant mixed-use suburb. Many of them are built in the growth path of existing cities. And so for reference, there's over 70 million new urban residents annually concentrated in Africa and Asia. So there's this huge demand for new housing. And the private sector, and sometimes the public sector, is stepping in to fill this demand. And what these projects are basically 10 square kilometer or larger with 100,000 or more residents, and also with sometimes an industrial park or a business district, um, commercial, sometimes a university. So these are sort of satellite cities and aiming to semi-self-contained areas where people can both live, both work and, and have fun. And so we like to partner with these groups. They're another important stakeholder because they actually have the capacity to build new cities, which is quite challenging in and of itself. So you have the governments, you have the, the new city developers. Then in addition, you need basically the, the international development experts. So one of the countries during a, that we are working with to try to create this framework, one of the questions they had was basically, okay, this real estate developer, do they have any experience with governance? And the answer was no, right? Like, this is where these international development experts come in, where we can partner with them to provide some of the expertise in, like, what does it mean to actually create a new, for example, business registry? How do we do that? What does it mean to draft legislation for labor law? And so bringing in these experts that have experience in being able to create the this new legal legal framework and also staff it. Third, Another important stakeholder is the investors, because building new cities are very expensive projects. And so it's important to work with investors who are able to finance the infrastructure build out of the, the new city developers and get them to be part of the conversation to understand right what are the key requirements for these massive infrastructure projects. And then in addition, uh, I guess the, the, the last important stakeholder to mention is uh, the anchor tenants. And so if you're building a new city, then making sure that you have this one anchor tenant that comes in, creates a thousand or so jobs to sort of overcome the chicken and the egg problem, where people don't want to live in an area where there isn't much economic activity, and people don't want to start a business in that area if there aren't many people who are living there who will frequent the business. So having this anchor tenant that's willing to invest money to build a factory or whatever it is that can create a few thousand jobs that then other entrepreneurs are interested in coming out into perhaps set up a grocery store and really make it a, a desirable place to, to live as well as to work. And so in your framework, I mean, do you have an ideal 
like an ideal conditions for a charter city? I mean, based on what you're saying, it sounds like this would be much more effective in somewhere like Africa or Southeast Asia, where the governance structure is already much, much looser, we'll say, than the West. And you can find a open plot of land with not much, uh, not much going on there that you can really start from scratch. I mean, is that the ideal scenario for, for a charter city? Yeah, I think that is. So the U.S. and Europe, the EU, for example, has special economic zone regulations that are relatively stringent, so it would be difficult to get a charter city there. And also the U.S. and Europe are highly urbanized, as well as um, relatively well off. So improving governance in the U.S. and Europe would lead to, would have relatively limited returns, while improving governance in Africa, Asia could have much more substantive returns as well as the fact that there is just demand for new urban developments in those countries. So if you look at how cities emerge historically, being having natural ports, um, being on trade routes is quite important. And this is changing a little bit with telecommunications and with flights, but nevertheless, ports still remain dominant. So having reasonable access to a port would be important. Having a government that is um, interested and willing to work with you is also important. I think the sweet spot, at least in per capita income, is about 1000 to 5000 US dollars annually. If you are below $1,000 US annually, it's difficult to, most countries with incomes that low aren't stable enough to attract that kind of capital to credibly commit. If you have between 1000 and 5000 then it's generally a country that's reasonably stable and that allows for hopefully some of this continuity that's necessary for charter city developments. But two also is still... Um, has enough upside that it justifies the the large capital requirements for building charter cities. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about what China's doing with their One Belt, One Road initiative? I mean, it makes a lot of sense why a, a, a country that's in a similar position to where Shenzhen was, as you mentioned, in the 80s to kind of, if China's coming in with, with money and the exact playbook that they use for their special economic zones, it makes sense that, that a country would, would look to partner with China on something like that. But, I mean, this seems like a really big deal. China invested or committed $4 trillion to this project around the globe. And so it's clearly going to be an impactful initiative in, in shaping the future of the world. And so can you talk just a little bit about what, what they're up to with, with this initiative? Sure. The Belt and Road Project is, I guess, China's uh, overseas expansion plan which might not be the right word. They're basically similarly to, as you mentioned, they're taking their development playbook and basically exporting it. So what they're doing is undertaking massive infrastructure projects around the world. And this these consist of several different types of infrastructure projects. They are building special economic zones. In addition, they're building new ports. They're also building railroads, roads. They're building government buildings. They built the African Union, for example. And what they, there's, I think, several ways to interpret it. One is just that they have all of this basically capacity to do these things. And now that the infrastructure demand in China is slowing, they have all these skills, they have all these talents. And now they're basically like, what do you do when you have dozens of these companies that are able to execute on infrastructure on a massive basis and run out of infrastructure to build? You go build infrastructure overseas, particularly if you can finance it. Another way to interpret it is basically China is run their governance structure is can be thought of as corporate to a certain extent in that local party officials who have domains over their towns or cities 
basically have to meet certain GDP targets to get promoted. And what this has led to, combined with their basically easy money policies, is that the local party officials have basically realized that building infrastructure is free because the credit is so cheap. And they continue to have access to cheap credit. And it's important to note that One Belt, One Road is, well, it's often portrayed as this sort of like China, I don't know, like semi-world domination plan. It isn't always useful to think of China as a single entity. Just like the United States, there are all these different actors in China that are vying in the system for their own interests. And so if you look at actually the history of One Belt, One Road, many of these projects were initiated before the One Belt, One Road was officially launched. So in a certain extent, One Belt, One Road is just the legitimization of projects that were already occurring in the formalization. And actually, until recently, there wasn't, China itself did not even have a like strict definition of what projects counted as One Belt, One Road. And I don't know if the report has been released. I know it has been at least commissioned. Basically, she commissioned a report that would define what projects count as One Belt, One Road to sort of prevent other projects from like claiming the name and pretending to be part of this grand Chinese plan without actually meeting several of the requirements. So I guess one way to, to sum this up is One Belt, One Road is a sort of emergent infrastructure plan coming out of China, which is focusing relatively heavily on Asia, Africa, and Europe, where they are basically building lots of major infrastructure projects to create these um, networks of trade. Mm, right. Which is also happening concurrently with the U.S. pulling back and focusing inward. So probably not the best thing. I mean, I, I guess I, I don't understand macroeconomics enough to understand how China can commit $4 trillion to this when that's like a third of their entire GDP. But I guess over a long period of time, and because it's very easy to commit things when all you do is you say that you're going to commit them. Mm. <laughs> I could commit $4 trillion right now. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point, actually. Before we enter the quick fire round, I do want to quickly talk about what happened with the charter city that uh, you have talked about in Honduras and kind of what, what lessons were there to learn for how to make charter cities successful moving forward. Sure. So the history of charter cities, Paul Romer, who just won the Nobel Prize in economics, gave a TED Talk on charter cities about 10 years ago. He had two chances to create one, one in Madagascar, the other in Honduras. In Honduras, they passed charter cities legislation. Um, then Paul Romer left. There was bad blood on both sides. Uh, the charter cities legislation was shot down by the Supreme Court. They changed the legislation and changed the constitution and got the legislation passed again. So there remains charter cities legislation on the books, but there were basically internal politics. Charter cities are quite complicated. In I've heard secondhand that a number of basically large entities sort of looked at it, but were scared off because like, what does it actually mean to create a new legal system? That expertise doesn't really exist. And you need to have relatively deep pockets to figure it out and a pretty high tolerance for risk. And the groups that have those deep pockets also probably don't have that high tolerance for risk. Because if you are a major real estate developer who has the expertise in city building, then you, right, like once um, groups get sufficiently large, they try to bound, like restrain the lower bound rather than like maximize the upper bound. And so because of that, 
and also because of basically internal politics in Honduras, you didn't have the large groups that had enough sort of firepower and money to figure it out and push the Honduran government to get their stuff together and the Honduran government because it's the Honduran government in part was sort of dawdling and sitting on their hands. And there was recently reported in a Honduran newspaper that a project, uh, Charter City, I'm not sure I would call it a Charter City per se, but a at least Charter Zone is going to be announced in the next two to three months. They're waiting on the Supreme Court to approve their judge. These rumors have been going on for at least a year and a half now. So maybe it will be two to three months, maybe it will be six months, maybe it will be a year, maybe it won't happen. I'm still semi-optimistic about it, but it's been a long slog. As for what the lessons were, I would say several fold. One is the importance of having a ecosystem that's not dependent on a single person. After Paul Romer left, basically all of the energy and inertia with charter cities died. And what we are trying to do at the center is to basically get lots of people interested get lots of projects started such that it's not dependent on a single person. And if anything happens to me, there will still be momentum. Two, another important aspect is not placing all the eggs in one basket. So trying to get projects started in as many places as possible, not just in a single country, just because politics are inherently unpredictable and putting all your eggs in one basket leads to the possibility of heartbreak if it doesn't work out. A third important aspect is allying with new city developers. One of the things I've heard secondhand from uh, people involved in Honduras is that there wasn't really serious discussion of the, I don't know, engineering challenges of building a new city. And so in that, it's right, you can talk about the governance aspect all you want, but if you don't have a executable plan for action on the real estate side, then it doesn't really matter just because you're asking for such large sums of money that you need to, I think, um, think very carefully about having both the sort of political governance side as well as the, the, the real estate side lined up. And then I think the third is, is just that governance is really hard and politics is really hard. And what does it actually mean? Paul Romer, for example, was recommending that a high-income country act as the guarantor country to basically have Canada, for example, come down and administer a charter city in Honduras. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But like, even if you say just they'd come down and administer a charter city in Honduras, there still leaves a bunch of questions like, what does that practically mean? And so starting to think through a lot, a lot of the practical implications, thinking about one belt, one road, part of the reason that exists is because there is all of this like basically engineering knowledge in China that is hard to refocus to something else. And so there, there is all this experience building massive infrastructure and that, right, like retraining them, this is a sort of a special interest group in and of itself and retraining them would be costly. So who are the people that are going to govern a charter city? How are they going to be trained? What standards are going to be used? These are all difficult questions that need serious thought and understanding to be put in, to be um, figured out. And that is something that we are beginning to actively grapple with, but uh, it's, it's not easy. What are the countries or regions that you're seeing the most interest from the political side for, for, these, for the charter city concept? Mostly in Africa. We're in early conversations in... So our model, we're a relatively small team. Our model is to find partners on the ground. There's one country where we've basically engaged the bureaucracy to... We're hoping to get a memorandum of understanding signed in Zambia. And we have not engaged the bureaucracy or the political class in any other countries. We have several projects where we hope to engage them in the near to medium term future. 
but we're waiting to basically see how committed and interested the parties on the ground are to this concept and what they can do to help. Awesome. Well, Mark, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round, four questions, 60 seconds per answer. Sound good? Sure. What is your favorite business book and why? The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, because it is a very honest book about building a startup and tackles hard questions and doesn't really go over them. And I think communicates, right? Like one of the chapters is like how to fire your friends. <laughs> if you start a startup and it starts like hitting the potential for hyper growth, then the people who you hire early, who maybe they weren't friends when you hired them, but they're certainly your friends now, at some point they might not be the right people to execute and you have to replace them. And that decision sucks, right? Like you don't hear people, I think, you don't hear people think very deeply about those things. And so based on your, your travels and your, your experience with the, uh, the Center for Innovative Governance Research, where outside the U.S.? If, if you had to pick one place to live, uh, where would that be and why? London. London. Because they speak English. It's, <laughs> it's a, a large... That speak English. That's true. It's a large cosmopolitan city that is rather... We looked into moving to London that, right, like it's relatively close to Africa where many of our projects are or are going to be that has experience with both politics and with um, international development. And it's, I mean, I also am a fan of San Francisco. I like the people in San Francisco. The, the city itself is like falling apart, it seems. So if you can start a charter city with one person, you, you could partner with one person right now on a new charter city, who is kind of your, your dream candidate and, and, and why? Muya, the guy building a city in Zambia. <laughs> Why? Because I've worked with him extensively. I like working with him. He is building a new city and he is competent. If they to sort of, I guess, reinterpret this question less slightly differently, like a dream candidate who I don't know who I'm not working with. I mean, Akon's talked about building a city in Senegal. It's unclear how credible that project is and how able they'll be to execute on it. The other option is basically somebody who has a lot of celebrity who is happy to use that celebrity to advance the political angle and then just lets me control the execution side. I'm not sure necessarily who that person would be. The, the, the binding constraint is currently politics, so having somebody who can help solve the politics would be good. Right. That makes sense. And final question, what is your favorite thing? I know you are born and raised here, but what, what is your favorite thing about living in D.C.? So if you want to do tech, you go to San Francisco. If you want to act, you go to LA. If you want to do ideas, you go to DC. And so DC has a fairly interesting, I think, mix of people who are very passionate about what they do and interested in ideas and how these ideas can be used to change the world and make it a better place. Awesome. Well, Mark Letter, Executive Director for the Center for Innovative Governance Research. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 